of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the more memorable and moving lines in all the Bible to me is St. Paul's farewell to Timothy. Approaching the martyrdom that he feels is surely coming, Paul says, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. But what is faith that we should have to run and even fight to keep it? Is faith something that we think, something that we feel, something that we do? Some say faith is belief. Some say it is trust. Some say it is action. I think that each of those answers is true. But to imagine faith, picture a triangle. The three points are belief, trust, and action. Faith lives at each of those points and in the lines connecting each point to the other two. In other words, Christian faith is three in one and one in three. Your faith is a reflection of the Holy Trinity. It's also pictured in that window back there. It lives in and between your intellect, belief, your emotions, trust, and your ethical values and commitment, action. So let's try this. Picture your soul as a high school. I've visited and checked in at the office, got a hall pass and permission to walk the halls looking for your faith. I might go to the library, your intellect, and find it working on a paper or checking out a book. Or I could see it in the gym, your ethical values and commitments, working up a sweat. And if I came back on Saturday night for the homecoming dance, I would find faith stirring your emotions. On the outside, high school looks like it might be four years of uninterrupted fun. From the inside, as I remember, it wasn't always easy. Not in the library, not in the gym, and especially not at dances. I have bad library memories of algebra books. I have bad gym memories of getting my shots stuffed regularly by Purcell Smith. I have bad dance memories of my dream girl, Julie Honeycutt, dancing with another guy. <laughs> we humans are vulnerable at all the points where faith lives, our thoughts, our values, and especially our emotions. So how do we fight this good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith? Let's take that question to the library, to the gym, and to the senior prom. We'll start in the library. Libraries are stuffed with books. In a good-sized library, you can find books on any subject, history, world religion, evolution. There is no end of things to think about and learn. Faith is interested in every book in the library. When my father was bishop, a college student who wanted to be a priest told him that he planned to major in religion at Hendricks. The bishop advised him not to major in religion. 
but rather in either literature or physics. This is because faith is not about religion. It is about the world and life and God. Religions is what we do about it. What we need as human beings is faithful intelligence and intelligent faith. What we too often settle for is faithless intelligence or unreasonable faith. Lately, it has seemed that both are on the rise. This is not a healthy situation for us. Lack of faith actually diminishes intelligence. Defects of reason diminish faith. Faith and reason strengthen, complement, validate each other. In our society today, we Christians, we Episcopalians, must fight the good fight to bring and keep the two together. Eighteen years ago, at the age of 43, I went back to school, back to homework, back to books, back to teachers' dirty looks. I went back wanting to better understand what it means to be both reasonable and faithful. I became especially interested to see how faith in Christ fits with what science philosophy, and history can show us about the world. It took 10 long, hard years of effort, but finally I came out the door with a diploma in hand that named me a doctor of theology, which I suppose means that I'm more or less a board-certified teacher of the Christian faith and the Anglican tradition. So what do I teach? I teach faith's acceptance of Darwinian evolution because the evidence is there. I teach to undermine the myth of science-religion warfare. Historically, I now know, the idea that Christian faith has chronically opposed itself to science is mostly wrong. This idea that science and religion have been perennially at war is largely a modern invention that is traceable to some historians and scientists who frankly had an anti-religious axe to grind. Again, the evidence is there. I teach that Christian faith is true. I teach its truth not just around the edges, but at the core. In Jesus Christ, God himself was with us, full of grace and truth. For our sins, he died. For our life, God raised him from the dead, victorious. In Christ, we are more than conquerors over sin and death and evil. The evidence is there. The old skeptic H.L. Mencken defined faith as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. Give Mencken credit for being clever, but what he said isn't true. There is more than enough logic in Christianity. Read Thomas Aquinas and you may get more logic than you can swallow. As for probability, the gospel of Jesus Christ has all the probability that faith in him requires. Our beliefs concerning God and Christ are more than probable enough to bet our lives on, and they are good and beautiful enough to make us want to. This side of heaven, I don't see how we could ask for more.
Let's put down the books and walk on over to the gym because faith lives not only in our thoughts but also in our actions. Faith involves an ethical commitment to live by certain values. But which ones? That's the struggle. So many different values compete for our devotion. If you were to look inside my soul, you would see a complicated mix of family loyalties, business responsibilities, and church duties, each with its own set of values asking for my attention and my commitment. You would also see the full set of basic instincts and raw ambitions that belong to human nature. I assume you have those too. One of our jobs as human beings is to fold our basic instincts into activities that are wholesome and socially worthwhile, such as family, business, and church. It does not require faith to see the necessity for this. No one wants to live in a world governed only by instinct and ambition. If you want a glimpse of a world edging in that direction, check out the movie, The Social Network. What faith does is raise the bar on our ethical values and commitments. It asks us to fold our civilized and socially wholesome activities like work and family into a yet higher vision of what it means to be a human being. Faith says... You are made in the image of God. Act like it. And that changes how we do family and church and business. And then, just when we think we've gotten good at that, faith raises the bar again. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us that we can do just about everything right, up to and including fasting, tithing, and going regularly to church on Sundays, and still get it wrong by feeling morally superior. If that weren't odd enough, Jesus then indicates that we can get just about everything wrong, lying, stealing, adultery, missing church, etc., and getting it, then getting it right by opening our hearts to a spirit of remorse and a sincere desire to turn our lives around. Just like that, we're good with God. This is one of the more difficult two-sided teachings of the Christian faith. And taking it to heart, faith has a real struggle on its hands. The goal is to be moral, but not self-righteous and judgmental. We fight first to overcome the urge to help ourselves to whatever we think we can get away with. And then we must struggle against the urge to congratulate ourselves for our success. This seems almost impossible until we realize that sinfulness and self-righteousness come from the same place and they have the same remedy. The source is the ego. The remedy is love. Love checks the darker angels of our lower nature and then it casts out the darker angels of our moral nature too. In the soul's gymnasium, what we are working on inwardly and outwardly is love. And again, we talk about love all the time in the church. What does it mean? Aquinas says, to love another is to want that person's good. I love you when I seek and desire what's good for you. 
So the bell rings, school is out, and it's time to go home and get ready for the prom. We're all getting spruced up, slicked down, and ready to put on our dancing shoes. <coughs> I'm both excited and nervous. Does she love me or does she love me not? Did I put on, on too much high karate? <laughs> well, I try to kiss her at the door. <coughs> Faith is not only what we think and do, it is also how we feel. The feelings are excitable and nervous. We are up, we are down, we are in between. The feeling that we want is happiness. St. Augustine built one of his great theological tomes from this premise. Only a fool doesn't want to be happy. But as life goes on, more and more, we suffer loss of those people, those experiences, those things that had been the source of our moments of happiness in life. We have them, we enjoy them, and we lose them. Loss gets us coming and going as we feel it both by way of anticipation, fear, and memory, grief. The Holy Spirit's remedy for fear and grief is hope. Hope is not an anesthetic. It does not dispel the pain of fear and grief. It does, however, take something from their power. We are afflicted. Paul writes, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That is how hope works. It knows the reality and power of loss, but it believes and trusts in a higher, better, stronger reality and power higher and stronger than fear, higher and stronger than grief, higher and stronger than death. The H.L. Minkins of the world write off hope as wishful thinking, but our hopes don't rest on wishes. They rest on Jesus Christ. To him be ascribed all glory, majesty, power, and dominion, now and forever. Amen.